A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Great Northern War, which originally aired as one episode on the 4th of July, 2012. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Great Northern War Part 2. Last time we examined the build-up to war in the Baltic and saw how the jealousies, rivalries and ambitions of Sweden's neighbours at Poland, Denmark and Russia caused all three to attack Sweden at once in 1700. Within months, though, it was clear that the teenage Swedish king would take none of this lying down. Two years after the war began, Charles of Sweden had occupied much of Poland, shattered the Russians, and scared off the Danes. As ever, though, the war wasn't over till it was over, and with Charles asking for increasingly stringent terms to insulate his kingdom from further assaults, the Russians began their march back to face the Swedes. Let's see what happens next. I will now take you to May 1702. I have resolved never to start an unjust war, but never to end a legitimate one except by defeating my enemies. Charles XII. After two years of solid successes in his war against the anti-Swedish League, Charles opened the campaign season in May 1702 by taking Warsaw. This would have been devastating enough for Augustus, but worse news came on the July 9th Battle of Klesov. 
Charles moved with such confidence and held his army together so well that it seemed to unnerve the coalition forces, and then a stray cannonball decapitated within the Polish army the senior cavalry commander's second-in-command. This cavalry commander, High Rome Augustin Lubmirski, was severely spooked by the loss of his close friend, and although he was crucial to the battle, he fled the field, crippling his army's effectiveness. With the Polish right flank and cavalry absent, the Swedes capitalised and routed the remainder of the coalition army. Charles didn't stop there, though. He went on to take Krakow after a brief siege, effectively seizing control of Poland just like his grandfather had done 50 years before. And while Augustus was beginning to realise just how in the pink he was, Charles attacked again and routed another coalition army in the Battle of Pultusk on the 13th of April 1703. But Charles now received word of what Peter was doing. Peter, it seemed, had gotten over his loss at Narva and was now moving up towards the Baltic again. Peter Pan, as I accidentally called him in the last episode, I promise I won't get the giggles again, sent an army 13,000 men strong to attack the Baltic territories, <laughs> never mind, to attack the Baltic territories under the command of Boris Sheremetev. You'll remember that Charles had left 15,000 men behind to garrison the Swedish-owned territories of Estonia and Livonia, but these were stretched far too thin for any realistic reaction to Russian attacks. Charles had gambled that it would be a while before the Russians would attack again, and that in that time he could force Poland's surrender. Charles had been right, it did take a while for the Russians to attack, but now his time would run out. Peter was resuming the war against Charles, and this would force Charles to come back to the Baltic. Or would it? Charles was bogged down in Poland at this stage. Augustus wasn't giving him battle anymore, and Charles had rejected Augustus's attempts to make peace, seeing Augustus's treason as vain and a dishonourable character, not to mention a usurper, who had used false pretenses to gain the Polish throne. Charles knew that in order to achieve a forced abdication, he would have to defeat Augustus soundly and repeatedly. Peter's commander, Boris, and I'm not going to bother trying to re-pronounce his surname because I'll just get it wrong and confuse you, Sherem something, achieved victory for Peter at the battles of Arrestfer and Humselsdorf on 7th of January and the 18th of July respectively, and this opened the way into the Baltic for the Russians. Peter then pulled a Constantine when he decided to found a city and name it after himself. St. Petersburg was born on the remains of a Swedish fortress on the 16th of May, 1703, and it all but guaranteed Russian access to the Baltic. I'm going to be honest here, I really think the fact that Peter just up and founded a city in his own name during wartime is quite fascinating. I mean, if you consider that Russia's capital had been rooted in Moscow for centuries, Peter believed so strongly that a Baltic port was so essential for Russia that he created one, and rebranded it as Russia's capital, and after himself, and without a single beard in sight. Peter would move the capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg only in 1712, although he was already referring to St. Petersburg as the capital, or seat of government, as early as 1704. With St. Petersburg founded then, Peter set about securing the land around it for his new capital, the city which would be the capital of the Russian Empire for the next 200 years. However, while the area directly around St. Petersburg was secure, the surrounding Baltic provinces still remained in Swedish hands. Peter would not see Russian flags fly over the Baltic provinces 
For a while yet, they remained wholly Swedish territory, thanks mostly to the military genius of Adam Ludwig Lievenhaupt, who held the Russians at bay despite the overwhelming odds against him. Charles would have been happy to hear of Lievenhaupt's resolve, since he had also been privy to some incredibly good news. Finally, after years of campaigning, Augustus the Strong had agreed to relinquish his claims to the Polish throne, enabling Charles to place a pro-Swedish ally on the throne of Poland and completely end the anti-Swedish alliance. The seeds of Augustus's removal from the throne of Poland had been sown through Charles' use of a figure who will come to familiarise herself with more during When Diplomacy Fails' remastered story, and indeed in the original back catalogue you would have encountered him a few times as well. Stanislaus Lijinski. Stan, for short, well, for this podcast anyway, since typing and saying his name repeatedly will give me a headache. Stan, you see, had been a pretender to the throne of Poland early in Augustus's reign, but Augustus's rule had been too secure to challenge. Now, though, Stan could exploit the very real opportunity available to him. The Polish throne was an elected one, and thus claimants to its throne did not have to be related to previous monarchs, though the institution frequently passed between distant relatives. Hailing from a noble Polish family, this would not be the last time Stan emerged to claim the Polish throne, as of course we know from episode 9, nor would it be the last time he required foreign aid to capture it, as of course we know from episode 9, but by this stage Stan was occupied with getting the Swedes on side to fulfil his plans. Though he promised to ally Poland to Sweden, Charles perhaps didn't realise that the lies Stan was telling him, i.e. about how the Poles and Lithuanians loved him and how they wanted him as king, not that other guy with all the children, were actually lies, and Charles would place a king on the throne of Poland who never enjoyed the same level of popularity as Augustus had. This fact would contribute to Charles's eventual downfall, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Charles believed now that he had finally found someone he could rely on in Stan. All he had to do was place him on the throne and remove Augustus as a credible threat. And this Charles did in the following years. The story is a pretty impressive one, so let's see how he did it. In 1704, Charles had inflicted enough defeats on Poland to be able to convince the Polish-Lithuanian Parliament, or Sejm, to replace Augustus with our good friend Stan. Augustus, of course, protested this move, and Charles couldn't just ignore him because Augustus still held Saxony. So, Charles decided to march on Saxony and face Augustus in his own home, which he did in the Battle of Fraustadt on the 2nd of February 1706. Hence, if you remember, Charles's cameo appearance in the War of the Spanish Succession. As Europe gawked at Swedish forces and attempted to weasel their way into Charles's confidence, the Swedish king remained focused on disassembling the anti-Swedish League. The decisive Swedish victory here effectively removed the threat Augustus posed to Sweden, but Augustus wasn't done just yet. He had one last card to play before he gave up the throne. Augustus appealed to the Holy Roman Empire that the Swedes were violating the emperor's lands by invading Saxony, and that Vienna should really do something about it. As 1706 neared its end and as the winter began approaching, Charles was desperate for results. He was sick of Augustus always running away from him and didn't want to spend another year chasing him while Peter was rampaging across his Baltic possessions, so Charles decided to gamble by also talking to Vienna, albeit in a different tone to Augustus. 
Charles told Austria, in no uncertain terms, that they better tell Augustus to cop on, or he was not going to leave Saxony any time soon. In fact, Charles would have suggested, my army may get hungry and need some Holy Roman foods for the winter if you don't, you know, do the right thing, wink wink, nudge nudge. Vienna read Charles loud and clear, and they recognised they couldn't fight Sweden while also fighting France and Spain, so they told Augustus to accept Charles's terms and pronto. Augustus, under pressure from Vienna and without an army, agreed to relinquish his claims to the Polish throne and cancel his alliance with Russia, leaving Peter out in the cold to face Charles's forces all alone. Despite his misgivings, Augustus knew that he had no choice. He signed the Treaty of Altranstadt on the 13th of October, 1706. And this, folks, is where the narrative switches beautifully back to the other war in Europe at the time, the War of the Spanish Succession. It was during the next year that hurriedly composed letters and documents flew around Europe as the course of France, England, Austria, Prussia, Spain and the Netherlands tried to gauge exactly what the Swedish angle was. With only Russia left to fight Sweden, every indication seemed to be that both powers would reach another peace treaty pretty soon, and so they would both be freed up to take part in the War of the Spanish Succession. Both the Allies and Bourbons tried their fair share of, hey, why don't you join us in the party over here? But Charles was having none of it. He had what he came for, he didn't like what Louis was doing to the French Protestants, so no alliance there, but he also didn't want another front open against France while he fought his war in the north. Charles said no thanks, and he passed back into Polish territory to prop up his newfound ally Stan, and thus exiting Western Europe, dashing the dreams that the Western powers may have had for another ally. Just as the Western powers expected, Charles then received a letter from Peter. It was a peace deal. Peter proposed to give Charles back basically everything he had thus far occupied, except for St. Petersburg and some land around it, in order to avoid the kind of full-scale war Charles seemed to be preparing for. But Charles said no. If he had said yes, we may be talking instead about how the Swedish Empire lasted just as long as the British equivalent, and how Russia never ascended to great power status. It would have been an awesome achievement for the young Swede, defeating all his enemies, dethroning the Polish king, paralysing the Danes and containing the Russians, but Charles said no. In doing so, he believed he was entering into a campaign which would end Peter's Russia totally and leave it in the same vulnerable, subservient status as Poland. Charles wanted to depose Peter as he had done to Augustus. He wanted to cement Swedish imperialism in the Baltic, not just maintain it. He wanted Russia to retreat, to acknowledge its superiors and to capitulate to Sweden completely. Only then would Charles be satisfied. But Charles, in a theme we've encountered numerous times in the mid-17th and early 18th century, asked too much of his enemy. He asked too much of Peter in return for peace. Peter was an absolute monarch. His rule depended on an iron hand and the power of fear. Augustus had been a constitutional monarch, and his rule had depended on the support of the people. When the Polish populace decided they had had enough of war, they approved Augustus's removal in exchange for peace. When the Russians decided they had had enough of war, Peter's secret police told them that they better start liking the war or else he would see to it that they disappear. This was but one of the elements in play that made Russia so different to Poland at this time, and Charles's failure to see their differences would cause him no end of headaches. 
Charles would begin the trend which would be followed by Napoleon in the next century and Hitler in the following one. Just like everyone else, Charles believed that he could beat Russia through an invasion. But just like everyone else, his campaign in Russia would ruin him. So how does Charles lose after defeating his enemies for seven years? This is how. On the 1st of January 1708, Charles crossed the River Vistula into Russia, seeking, as he believed, ultimate victory and immortality, but in reality, as we now know, marching to his end. As they normally did, the campaign of invasion into Russia went well for Charles. He advanced rapidly with an army of 45,000 men strong against the Russian steppes, covering vast distances and encountering little real resistance. But Peter started a trend himself, that of scorched earth. Peter burned, destroyed, killed or hid anything of value he came across, determined to catch Charles out and starve his army into oblivion. Charles came so close to catching Peter's armies numerous times but was consistently eluded. That said though, Charles actually managed to defeat the Russians at the Battle of Holovchun on the 4th of July 1708, but the Russians withdrew calmly, not in a panic, and they lived to fight another day. Such a victory, even though it was a victory, did worry Charles. He needed decisive victories, not ones which left Peter's forces intact. How else was he going to convince the Russian people, if not the Russian governing apparatus, to depose Peter? Charles began to understand the gravity of the situation, but he sought aid from the Cossack revolt occurring in Ukraine and from his Polish ally Stan. Stan did his best, but said he couldn't send aid till the next year, since Stan was dealing with problems of his own and trying to pacify those in Poland who perhaps didn't want him around all that much. So Charles tried to make use of the Cossack reinforcements he was expecting, but it turned out that the leader of the Cossacks, Ivan Metzepa, exaggerated slightly when he said that the Cossacks were all for Sweden and Charles's protection. The 30,000 reinforcements Metzepa had promised actually turned out to be just 1,500. Additionally, Ukraine was not happy to see Charles, and it treated him just as badly as Peter had treated the Ukraine. Charles, now low on practically everything, sent word to his subordinates to help their king. Two replies came, one from his general Levenhaupt, who had defended so well against the Russians in the previous years, and he aimed to reinforce his monarch with 13,000 troops, supplies and cannons, and another reply came from the general Liebecker, who promised to draw the Russians away with a direct attack on Peter's favourite new city, St. Petersburg. Charles breathed a sigh of relief, but both these plans would evaporate as both were defeated by separate Russian armies, which left Charles again desperate for a solution. Liebecker's defeat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It contains no real interesting anecdotes, but Leeuwenhaupt's one certainly does. Leeuwenhaupt realised during the battle that the Russians were fighting unexpectedly well and he believed he was about to lose, so that he could move faster and link up with Charles. He ordered his men to drop everything heavy and all their supplies, the likes of which Charles desperately needed. The soldiers weren't too happy about this order though, since Leeuwenhaupt had ordered they drop the alcohol too. Leeuwenhaupt watched helplessly as many of his soldiers mutinied and began drinking vast amounts of alcohol in protest. Leeuwenhaupt ended up having to abandon 1,000 of his men in the woods beyond the battlefield as they were too drunk to get away. I could not make this up. Well, it probably seemed like a good idea at the time, but I'm sure a hangover is far worse when you have to endure it in a POW camp, that is, if the Russians even had those. The news would not have greeted Charles well. Not only that, but winter was setting in, and this Russian winter of 1708-09 would be the worst in living memory at that time, a fact which connects it well to the similar winter going on in France, which froze all the crops in the ground and caused a terrible famine there. When spring came in 1709, Charles had just 18,000 effective troops out of his original 45,000. He was not without hope, though. Stan sent word that he was on his way with an army to help his benefactor. Hearing this, Charles was encouraged and decided to force Russian action by besieging Poltava, which was a fortified town on the Vorskla River in modern-day Ukraine. Once Charles was in place, though, Stan sent word to him again that he wouldn't be joining Charles, since problems at home prevented him from moving. Surprise, surprise. But Charles couldn't go back at this stage. He simply had to continue with the attack and hope that his forces could pull off another miracle. The ensuing Battle of Poltava saw Peter lead an army 100,000 strong against a Swedish army of barely 20,000. Outnumbering his enemy 5 to 1, Peter wanted to draw Charles out into attacking his larger force so he moved out from his original fortified camp and built a second one, two miles from the encamped Swedish army, which was besieging Poltava. Peter wanted battle with the Swedes because he had learned beforehand that Charles had been injured in the foot and would not be leading his forces. As menial a detail as this sounds, this would actually give Peter the advantage, well, Peter hoped it would anyway, since despite his numerical superiority, past lessons, i.e. the First Battle of Narva, had told Peter that you can never count the Swedes out. Despite Charles's injury, though, he insisted on being present at the battle. 
his foot heavily bandaged and growing more infected by the day. Since he could not directly command his army, Charles left command up to General Lievenhaupt of the Baltic States fame, more was that Field Marshal Gustave Renskold. Not only did the two commanders not get on with each other, but both believed somehow that they were an overall command, and to make matters worse, the subordinate commanders, those that would personally lead the individual units of Swedish soldiers, hadn't been told about the change in command at all. Charles made the decision to attack the newer Russian camp in front of them before they could completely establish it, and the battle began in the early morning of the 28th of June 1709. Swedish forces, to their credit, did make good progress initially. Their left flank smashed through the numerically superior Russian right, pushing back the less professional Russian soldiers. It looked for a moment as though Charles would repeat the success of Narva again, despite the odds, but then disaster struck. The Swedish right flank became detached from the main army, and became surrounded by masses of Russian soldiers. Seeing this, Charles forced himself out of his litter and began shouting at his men to turn around and relieve the flank, but it was too late. The Swedish left flank had gone too far ahead to return and it was now cut off, while the right flank was being reduced to nothing by incessant musket fire. He ordered Lievenhaupt to manoeuvre his centre into assisting the right, but then Peter personally led a counter-attack on Charles's centre and right. Charles knew the battle was lost. He ordered his men, fighting, to follow him and retreat from the battlefield, but only 1,500 remained. The remaining pockets of Swedish resistance surrendered, and Peter surveyed the battlefield. It had been a close-run thing, despite the massive, some would say unfair, inequalities in size between the two armies. The Swedes only got into trouble once they became separated, and communication broke down. Peter had nearly been killed in the battle, as had Charles. A musket ball had knocked off Peter's hat, another had bounced off his saddle, while another famously dented the cross around his neck. Charles, meanwhile, had fired off a few shots himself once his litter had been destroyed. A stray cannonball had killed 21 of his 24 bodyguards, and once out in the open, his men scrambled to find him a horse. This horse was then killed under him, and Charles for a time was carried by his loyal subjects before being placed on another horse and riding to safety. Where Charles actually went opens up the next chapter in this narrative, as Charles sought refuge in the lands of the Ottoman Empire. While this war had been raging in Northern Europe, the Ottoman Empire had been worrying about what would happen if Russia won and then got emboldened enough to challenge Ottoman power along its borders. It had happened already before the war, if you remember, when Peter tried to establish his Grand Embassy as a way of isolating the Ottomans, Although that failed, the Ottoman Empire would be more wary of Russia in the future. Russia demanded that the Ottomans hand over Charles, but the Sultan refused. Peter said or else, the Sultan said or else what, so Peter decided to invade the Ottomans for good measure. Before he had gathered the forces necessary though, Charles convinced the Ottomans to launch a preemptive strike into Russian territory on the 10th of November 1710, declaring war on Russia in the process. Peter responded to this by marching a hastily prepared army of 60,000 men into Moldavia, which then was an Ottoman vassal state near the mouth of the river Danube, part of what is now Romania. The two armies collided with one another in the Battle of Stanislesti on the 11th of July 1711, 
and it resulted in a major defeat for Peter, as his army was practically crushed against the River Pruth by an Ottoman army 200,000 men strong. Had the Ottomans pursued the Russians, as Charles begged them to, it is very likely that history would have been very different. As we will see in the future, the newly minted Russian Empire will cause no end of problems for an Ottoman Empire on the brink of decline. The Ottomans, though, in this case, sued for peace after the battle, trusting that their victory proved the point of Ottoman superiority. In spite of his suspicions regarding Ottoman power, Peter was very thankful that the Ottomans had sued for peace, and he signed the Treaty of Pruth on the 21st of July, 1711. Even though the terms weren't exactly favourable to him, he'd have to promise never to interfere in Polish affairs, withdraw from the previously captured fort of Lutsov, and demolish some of the Russian forts on the Turkish border, Peter was all too happy to secure peace on that frontier so that he could focus on Sweden. He was annoyed that the war didn't go his way, for sure, but he sensed that the Ottomans didn't have the stomach for a long war against Russia, and this lesson would be passed on to his successors as they waged wars against the Ottoman Empire themselves. The Ottomans could wait for now. Peter wanted Charles and he wanted him now. He continued to press the Ottomans to give Charles up, but they continued to refuse. It wasn't exactly necessary to wrest Charles from the Ottomans, though, because news of the Swedish defeat at Poltava had done its work. It spread like wildfire throughout Europe. Sweden's enemies in Denmark, Poland and elsewhere were beginning to reform against him in his time of trial. Augustus the Strong marched into Poland and recaptured the crown for himself, dethroning Charles's buddy Stan in the process, and he then met Peter in the Polish city of Thorn. Once they revived their alliance, Frederick IV of Denmark sent word that he wanted to revive theirs too, and this was done with Russia and Poland-Lithuania, with the treaties of Dresden and Copenhagen respectively. The result was that by 1710 the Anti-Swedish League was resurrected, and since Sweden's monarch was in Ottoman exile, they were stronger and more confident than ever. Sweden's position thus began to fall apart. In 1710, the remaining Swedish forces in Poland moved from town to town, defeating the coalition in battles such as that at Gaddesbush, but were eventually reduced to very small numbers and surrendered in the siege of Tonning on the 16th of May 1713, the very town where the entire war had originated from. In 1714, Charles fled from Ottoman exile and moved to relieve Stralsund on the Baltic Sea. When it became clear that the town was about to fall, Charles withdrew before the end of 1715. In the summer of that year, Prussia burst onto the scene by declaring war on Sweden, adding itself to the anti-Swedish coalition, which by now included practically all of Northern Europe. It was clear by this stage that the war had degenerated into a land grab at Sweden's expense, in the spirit of land grabbing, Russia marched into Finland in 1713 and occupied most of it until the end of the war. Charles had, by 1716, lost all of his Baltic territories to Russia and Poland, but believed he could still win the war by forcing Denmark out of it. To do this, he marched into Norway, but met little success as the Norwegians adopted the same scorched earth policy as the Russians. Charles campaigned there for two years inconclusively. He tried to capture Frederiksten and succeeded on the 4th of July, but was left only with its smouldering remains. 
Then his entire transport fleet was destroyed by a combination of Danish naval moves and bad weather, and Charles lost the majority of his military supplies in the process. 1717 was a depressing but year of little action for both sides, as they both rebuilt, but 1718 was the nail in the coffin for Sweden, almost literally, as on December the 12th, Charles the 12th was shot through the head while trying to capture Frederiksten for the second time, and he was killed instantly. The year before, Charles made the disastrous decision to appeal to the Jacobite party in Britain in the hopes that they would aid Sweden in their current war, but all he got for his efforts was a declaration of war against him by an insulted Briton. The declaration had been an easy decision for George I, the new king of Britain. His home country of Hanover was at war with Charles anyway and had been since 1710. With the death of Charles, it was only a matter of time before Sweden collapsed. In a familiar scene, as this had also happened, if you remember, during the Swedish deluges of the late 1650s, after Charles X died in 1660, the Swedish Regency government had then sued for peace. Here, finally in 1719, Charles's successor, his sister Ulrika Eleanor, approved peace, dealing as she was with the development of new ideas concerning monarchy in Sweden. She would in fact only last until 1720, abdicating in favour of her husband Frederick I. Their collective reigns would usher in a new age of constitutional monarchy in Sweden, as the monarchy gave much of its powers to the nobility, ending the Swedish tradition of absolute monarchy in the process. The peace which came after developed a life of its own, as what to do with the Swedish lands became the hot topic among the other European powers. George I of Britain coveted lands in northern Germany, as did Danish king Frederick IV. Augustus of Poland was particularly concerned about Frederick William, the grandson of the great elector of Brandenburg, and the father of Frederick the Great, and of his ambitions for Prussia in the Baltic. Peter of Russia, meanwhile, wanted to extend Russian influence across Eastern Europe. Charles VI of the Holy Roman Empire decided to develop a treaty with Poland and Britain that would place Russian borders back to their pre-war limits, with a few exceptions. Britain and Prussia decided to negotiate their own treaties in the separate Stockholm Treaties on the 9th of November 1719, and January 21st, 1720, respectively, and in both cases, previously Swedish-owned German land was handed over to sweeten the deal. Sweden signed the Treaty of Fredericksburg on the 3rd of July, 1720, which ended the war with Denmark, and also made it agree to compensate and hand Denmark territories in Swedish Pomerania. Russia was the last power to deal with Sweden, and over 20 years after the war had begun, it signed the Treaty of Nestad on the 10th of September 1721, providing the official ending for the Great Northern War. The treaty gave Russia practically all of the Baltic states, and Russian lands would remain mostly unchanged until the First World War, when the Baltic states were granted their independence. Sweden was granted its right to hold most of Finland, but that was pretty much it. The Swedes had lost an enormous amount of territory to Russia, Prussia, Hanover, Poland and Denmark. It was clear that the party was over. After a series of unfortunate events, a poorly judged invasion and the greedy designs of vengeful rivals coming home to roost, the Swedish Empire was essentially no more. 
It began to look inward as a result, falling from its great power status and handing that baton instead over to its neighbours in Russia and, in time, Prussia, both of whom now loomed large in everyone's minds. With incredible consequences for the future of the world then, a relatively unknown war in the north of Europe at the beginning of the 18th century occurring, don't forget, while more famous wars over the Spanish throne raged on, ended the status quo in the region for good. With a power vacuum emerging in Sweden's absence, the likes of Prussia and Russia, and to an extent Austria, would come to fill it, and Scandinavia became even more tied to European fortunes, as did Eastern Europe to the West. The Russians, as Peter the Great had always wished to make clear, had now definitively arrived. The Great Northern War is often overlooked because it occurs simultaneously to the War of the Spanish Succession, but, as I'm sure we've grasped by now, to overlook it is to miss a fascinating era in Europe. Never again would Russia look anything less like a continental power, and never again would Sweden see its stock rise so high. The Great Northern War is essentially the end of an era, an era which few people understand or can even imagine today. A Russian loss in this war would likely have meant the absence of a Russian empire, at least in the foreseeable future or how we recognise it today, but perhaps even permanently. Had Peter lost, and then lost again, could he really have acquired the support of his people to the extent that he could unite them into the empire that we know of as Russia today? Would a Russia which lost the Great Northern War be strong enough to exert its imperium on the rest of the world? Would a triumphant Swedish Empire allow it to do so? I don't believe it would. The Great Northern War then, while it is also a great example of eras coming to an end that really began during the Thirty Years' War, is also a great example of history balancing on a knife edge. If Charles had accepted Peter's offer for peace, or indeed the offers of any one of his enemies during his most triumphant stages, or perhaps had Charles not died, and Peter died in the Battle of Poltava, would we be living in the same world today? I don't think we would. But that just goes to show how important the Great Northern War was, and how important a figure Peter Pan was within it. So that's it, guys. Thanks for listening to the remastered look at the Great Northern War. My name is Zach, and I will, of course, see you soon. Welcome, Peter Pan. <laughs> Peter Pan. What is wrong with me? <clears throat> Welcome to when. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> right. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.